0: Um, I'm going to start out with a question, and maybe you've heard of this show. It's called The Family Feud. Have you guys ever watched that? Yes? No? Some of us? Have a limited response. Have you guys watched this show before? It's been around for a long time. Family Feud, Wheel of Fortune, and Jeopardy. These shows were around when I was a kid, back in the 80s. It's amazing that these shows have lasted so long. So, if I were to throw out this Family Feud question, sir, (laughs) top whatever, 100 people surveyed, And the basic question was, what are the top five common ways in which you would arm yourself to proactively protect yourself from, I'll call it a bad guy? So, we'll we'll just interact and then I'll jump into the word. What do you think out of the top five would be? I would have what? What kind of armament? A gun! There you go. That's one. That's in the top five. Give me another one. What else would you carry? A sword. That doesn't fit, but it wasn't on the survey. That's a good one, too. Maybe of a different generation or maybe a different continent or people group, but he's talking about his Bible sword. Alright, <clears throat> another one. I would do what? I have cameras. Okay, that's good. I didn't even think of that one. That didn't come in the survey, but that's another one. Another, another weapon that you'd arm yourself with. Pepper spray. Pepper spray's on there. Pepper spray. What else? What'd you say? Hands. Self-defense moves, right? You use your hands, your feet. Actually, sword was kinda in there. Knives or weapon, a physical weapon. And then lastly, this is sword or not a weapon, but some a response someone would do. They would Who said run away? Yeah. They would you can just run away. So so on a physical level, there are, are things that you can do when attacked. And these are some of them. Use your gun, kick, scream, use pepper spray, etc. And so, in the past, well, as I think about the church, um, there, there are attacks that we face. One of them is temptation, um, darts that the, the evil one throws at us. Um, in the church of, that Peter is addressing in the Roman world, Um, he's talking to people that are being attacked, I believe, physically and spiritually. Um, We know that they're being persecuted. Um, This is not like Oh, he put a bad comment on my Facebook. I'm really being persecuted. Okay, they didn't have Facebook back then, and this is not the type of persecution. Even though we probably think, oh, I'm persecuted. I got, what, 50 non-likes, thumbs-downs. I I feel miserable. My depression is terrible, and I need a lot of drugs to compensate. Um, That's the way the church believes and thinks of... Uh, persecution these days, um, am, I, am I feeling good when, when I have like what a 100 likes after my last video, but seriously, they're under physical duress. Um, people are being hurt by real stones, rocks, swords. Some people are being hung, some people are being crucified. Well, I'm basically saying the same thing there. Some people <laughs> and people are literally dying. You see relatives. And family members, and friends, and co-workers um, that, that have died, and so there's that level of physical uh, attack. And then on the spiritual dynamic, when things happen like this, you know, as human beings, we don't like it, so we do a lot of different things. We get mad, we get angry, we want to find someone to blame. Like you know, a wife could say, "You husband moved us to this city. Now look what's happening." Why Why did you tell us to come here? Or or, what? <coughs> a situation where like you have no one else to blame, so you just can get mad at your brothers and sisters in Christ because they did this or didn't do that and didn't do enough of this or whatever. We just find ways, sinful ways, to get angry and mad at each other. And so, Peter... Is addressing his audience then and us today and he's doing this proactively and there's this phrase in first Peter chapter 4 verse 1 that we want to tee off on and really Peter's going to use military language. He wants to call his fellow believers, his brothers and sisters in Christ, to be soldiers, to be armed, to be ready for battle and to do this proactively. Um, Believe it or not, we don't realize it unless you guys are part of a, a service like the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, or Army SEALs, or Navy SEALs, or FBI or CIA. There's groups of people, policemen too, <coughs> that are constantly being trained, working and working and working, to be trained to do what they need to do. And so, in the same token, Peter's saying, hey, as Christians, we need to be prepared for battle. And if we're not prepared for battle, we're going to be defeated. We're going to be destroyed. And so the phrase I want you to circle, whether in your mind or with an actual pen or something in your app or whatever, is this. Um, <coughs> Peter says, to arm yourself. To arm yourself. As a child of God, as a father of Christ, as a soldier of Christ, he says to arm yourself. Okay. So I'm going to give you a little bit of grammar on the Greek level. This phrase "arm yourself" is in the aorist middle imperative. Okay, what am I talking about? We th- see the phrase aorist. It refers to things that are done in the past. So, in the w- other words, he's saying to his audience. Peter's saying, his audience, "In the past, you've had this ongoing progression of preparing and arming yourself in the past." He's not saying, I want you to do this down the road, or I hope that you do it. The idea, arm yourself, you've been in training all along. Um, and, And there's a middle voice. It says in the phrase, arm yourself, it's not a passive or active voice, it's a middle voice. So in other words, as he's speaking to the audience, he's saying, it is you yourself, it is your responsibility to take ownership of the way you arm yourself. It's not saying someone else to do it for you or wait till you get it to yourself or you're enlisted in something. He's basically saying you need to take ownership of your personal development, your personal discipleship, your personal equipping. You can't just be spoon-fed. And this is also in the imperative. In other words, this is a command to obey. Not just a command to hear, to listen, to admire, but... The picture is a person who is in obedience to their commander-in-chief. And ultimately, the commander-in-chief is not Joe Biden, sorry. It is, and it wasn't President Trump. The commander-in-chief that we're talking about is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, We just need to get that crystal clear. Jesus Christ is the commander-in-chief over his church. And really, not just, I would say, this world and this entire Universe. And so, literally, Peter's saying to his audience, You guys need to use your weapons. You need to be trained in your weapons. And we're going to look at what some of these weapons look like. But you need to be equipped to be a soldier that is fighting and resisting injustice, that's re- dealing with the physical challenges, whether it's suffering of, of the physical nature, suffering of the emotional nature suffering of the relational nature, or even the potential death of your your own life or a loved one you might know. And so he's calling them to arms. And so he says and gives four specific reasons how to do that. And so that is right there on the screen now. The four ways in which Peter's saying, hey, let's arm ourselves, let's take up arms, are as follows. These are four strategies that will prepare us to face unjust suffering. In 1st Peter chapter 4 verses 1 to 6, the four strategies are right there. Strategy number 1, you face uh, to face unjust suffering with gospel thinking. The second strategy is face unjust suffering by being in the will of God. Strategy number 3 is to face unjust suffering with redemption from the past, and then fourth, face unjust suffering with and eternal future hope. So those of you taking notes, I'm going to be kind to you and say face, 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 face. There you go. You got five of them, all right? You're tracking along really well. Um, so we hit the first strategy. Strategy number one is face unjust suffering with gospel thinking. So the Apostle Peter is going to provide this sound strategy. The first strategy is to think biblically think in line of the scriptures think in line to the gospel think like Christ and so um <clears throat> and so if the if your mind has been trained in the scripture your heart has been trained in scripture you'll have an opportunity to what think biblically and think scripturally but if your mind is trained in the media and the world and all that stuff guess what you're gonna think like that it's it's pretty straightforward so what's in your mind is how you will think Lord willing and so, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Peter makes a, a connection real briefly. He says, since therefore, given the previous paragraph, or in our case, the previous sermon, we were reminded that Christ suffered in the flesh. When he suffered in the flesh, that, that refers to his physical body that was hung on the cross where Jesus was, our substitute, where the wrath of God was poured out upon him. So, in light of Christ's suffering and atoning and saving, ransom-giving, life-giving work, um, in light of what he has done in the previous passage, Peter's saying, therefore, on that basis, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, with the same way of thinking. This refers to your mind. So (coughs) Christ was on a mission. He was in submission to his Father, sent from heaven to earth, with a whole mission to, to think kingdom thoughts, to live kingdom lives, to know that his life, in one sense, wasn't his own. His life was going to eventually die on the cross, so he was not living for himself. He is living a God-centered life. In one sense, his whole life was a life of self-denial for his Father's will. And so, Peter's saying, hey, take on the same line of thinking. And so, the next phrase, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So, we're going to break this down further. As we contemplate what Christ has done, in one sense, he's calling us to do the exact same thing. As Christ gave his life, He is, in one sense, calling us to do the same, to give our lives um, for the sake of Him and for the sake of others. And so, He's calling for a logical and reasonable response. In view of the gospel, offer your lives as a sacrifice, that which is holy and acceptable to God. And it put our mind a little bit around the thinking of what Christ's mind was like. We see a glimpse of this in several passages, a lot of them in the Gospels. But I'll just give you one, as Jesus talks about what it means to follow Him, which really is Jesus' own picture of what it means to follow the Father. So, if you look with me, I believe it's right there in Matthew chapter nine, verses twenty-three to twenty-six. This is really a, one of the passages that's repeated, I think, three times in the the Gospels in a very similar sense. This is really a picture of what it means to follow Christ. It's the cost of discipleship. And it's the mindset, I believe, of Christ. He's, and he's saying to his audience, those who are believing and those who are not believing, if you want to follow me, if you want to be saved, he says this in verse 23. And he, says, and he, and he said to all, he's speaking to a broad audience, here a mixed audience, and he says this, if anyone would come after me, he phrased here, he would deny himself. Um, in other words, this means say, it means to say no to self. Other theologians will take it even further. It would mean to say d- to disown self, to, deny, to, <laughs> to die to self. So if you want to follow Christ in response to what he's done for you, he says, hey, deny yourself. And again, you see this middle voice. You see the word, himself. It's literally, you're saying to you yourself, I am going to die to this self of living for myself. And then he says to take up the cross. And he says to do this daily. Every day you take up the cross. We're not talking about a physical cross, but you're saying, hey, I'm going to live in what? Obedience to Jesus Christ. When Jesus was carrying the cross to Golgotha, or any of the other people who took crosses to their place of death, they're really in a picture of submission to the Roman government. And and Jesus is making a spin on this and saying, Hey, if you want to follow me, you're basically saying, Hey, you're going to be loyal and committed and obedient to God the Father, to Jesus Christ the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in accordance to God's Word. That's what it means to take up the cross daily, every moment of your life, and to follow Christ, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, to submit to His Lordship. And so, in verses 24 and 25, Jesus takes this statement, what it means to follow Him, this mindset to have the mind of Christ, and He just kind of nails it down. And just kind of just puts it right in your face and kind of nails it like nailing the coffin. And really just helps you to count the cost. In verse 24, He says this, For whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You're like, what is he talking about? If you want to find life in Christ, you, you do it this way. You recognize that life is not found in the things of this world. In one sense, you lose the ambition for this life and you give it up for what? Christ and his world and his kingdom to come. Um, verse 25, he says, What does the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or in other translation, it says forfeits his soul. So here's another picture. Jesus saying, you know, are you willing to follow me? Are you willing to count the cost? And he takes a, an extreme example. One person who gains the whole world. And I share this in different settings. You can just imagine this. You know, you're you're a kid going through school, and you get 1,600, and you ended up you end up at Duke, and you graduate top of your class. You get hired into a top company, and you end up going to Google one day. Not Google, Apple. That's moving here, and they're just putting this billion dollar building, and you just climb the corporate ladder, and you're like at the top of the Apple world, and you buy all of Apple. And you buy all of every other company around the world to the point, guess what? You don't need Bitcoin anymore. You actually own the whole world. What value of the whole is it to have the whole world yet forfeit your soul? And Jesus says, Hey, if you want to follow me, you need to count the costs in this way. You need to Forsake what the world offers and recognize that I am the greatest treasure. Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure to follow. And it's true. It is the greatest treasure because what? You'll inherit not just the earth. You'll be part of God's glorious kingdom one day and so much more. And then verse 26, um, he just takes a little further again. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. When he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, there will be a day when Jesus comes and he'll return. And for those in him, those who believe in him, he'll take home. And, those, and one day he'll also judge the living and the dead. And so we'll look at this later. There's another passage that talks about the great white throne judgment. And we'll look at what that means. But hold your thought there. We'll keep going on. So going back to initial question, as you face unjust, surf, suffering, persecution, even death, how are we arming ourselves? Have we put on the mindset, the thinking of Christ that we would give our life for Him, for His glory, for His king, kingship as we live in obedience to Him? And so (laughs) Peter's basically saying, hey, in order to put the mind of Christ in place to be ready to deal with unjust suffering, he says you need to know the gospel, you need to apply the gospel, and you need to live in light of the future. First Peter, and especially second Peter, is highly eschatological. In other words, it's always looking forward to the future and Christ's return and future judgment. So Peter's going to take this, future implication of the gospel, and he's going to use it as a means to minister to us here and now in our suffering. And so John MacArthur makes it pretty simple. He says, hey, the Christian life is basically this. As you think about your own well-being or, or not, he says the worst that can happen for a believer suffering unjustly is death. He says that's the worst thing. But at the same time, And that is the best that can happen because death means the complete and final end of all sin. In other words, Peter adopted the same mindset of the Apostle Paul. To die is gain. To die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I want you to know, when I think of most of the Christians I know, not many of them think this way. Most of us think, I just want to preserve my little life, and if I don't, I want to do everything possible not to die. But this is a, a reality of the Christian life. Um, in one sense, we're already dead; we're living on borrowed time, and God has sent us on a mission for how many days, months, and years He may give us to be a part of His great rescue mission. And He's, in one sense, saying, "Don't waste the life that I've given you." You're, in one sense, you're already dead, but I've given you time. But know that to die is to gain, and <clears throat> and if you understand that what Jesus is talking about, in one sense, more pain is greater gain in the life to come. When I say pain, suffering for Christ, suffering for the gospel, um, that is the Christian message. And <clears throat> but he says, he says this also as he sing, addresses to the audience. He wants to remind them that in one sense they are dead in Christ. Um, the old man is is dead. And he's no longer alive, and now you are to live for Christ. And so, <clears throat> I want to give you another verse before I hit strategy number two. One be summarizes the purpose of suffering this way: it says, "Suffering plus Christ in our lives can help us to have victory over sin." But the central idea here seems to be the same truth taught. In Romans 6, that we are identified with Christ in his suffering and death and therefore have victory over sin. As we yield ourselves to God and have the same attitude towards sin that Christ had, we can overcome the old life and manifest the new life. My friends, this is what the Christian life is about. This is one way to face suffering is to understand and to put on the mind of Christ. He had this mindset that he was going to have this thought that I am dead, but I have a mission all at the same time while I'm living. Um, strategy number two is we face unjust suffering by being in the will of the will of God. So sometimes I, I, I want to say I, I love our country with all the good and bad that comes with it. I love our country, um, but one thing that comes with being in our country is we we feel like we have rights. I think we have a sense of entitlement. Like we feel like we're entitled a lot. And if we don't get what we want, we just whine, fuss, and complain until we get what we want in whether whatever way that looks like. And so <clears throat> as you think about suffering, it doesn't in the in American life, it doesn't uh coalesce very well. It's actually in opposition to each other in many ways. And so, this is the second strategy that Peter wants to remind his audience and us today is to be in the will of God. That's your safe place to be. I mean, we might think it's fill in the blank. Those things may help a little bit in this life. But from this life to the next, you want to be in the will of of God, and so Peter's checking them, and he wants to say, "Hey, are you simply in the will of God?" The audience that he's addressing. So in 1 Peter chapter four verse two, he's basically he's going to lay out this reality: Are you in the will of God? This is a sound strategy to arm yourself with. So in verse two, he says, "So as you live for the rest of the time in the flesh, and no longer for human passion, but for..." The will of God. While, as disciples of Jesus Christ living here on earth in our human body, Peter is basically saying, I don't want you to waste your life. Um, In light of what Christ has done in your life to be dead to sin and alive to Christ, He wants you to live for Christ at the highest level possible. As those who have turned from sin and now have become followers of Christ, He wants to say, hey, I am going, he wants everyone to say, as we did in the previous passage, I am dead to sin. I'm going to deny myself. I'm no longer going to live for sinful passions. I'm going to instead have a passion for God and His will. You come, I'm going to cross-reference to Paul once again in Galatians chapter 2, 20. You embrace this new life reality. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. and the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So my friends, the focus is no longer on this fallen world, but it's on the world to come. The focus no longer on yourself to be self-centered, but it's a focus on God and his will to be Christ-centered. And so in the new testament there are six god it's god's will statements and these are summarized by John MacArthur so i'm not this clever to summarize it but once i read the book i'm like oh yeah i've seen these in scripture in the new testament so let's just kind of put you and walk you through a quick test to see if you are in god's will are you saved um christ desires that all people Rich, poor, black and white, and everyone else um, would be saved. The cross of Jesus Christ, his atonement on the cross is for all people. And so he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, It is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, this is God's will, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. <laughs> I understand in different cultures, we think our culture is it, whatever it may be. And maybe you, you, you've been a part of a church that it's this culture. And sometimes we're ethnocentric in that. I want you to know that is sin, my friends. The gospel's for all people, not just your one particular culture. I mean, the hope is, as people come to Christ, that we have a, a culture that's gospel centered, that understands we're a church for all people. So if you're in God's will, you're saved. Um, that's the first basic reality. The second one is you are spirit filled. In Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 to 18, the apostle Paul says in Ephesians, look careful how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will the will of the Lord is. You can underline, circle that part. If you want to know that what the will of the Lord is is this, do not get drunk with wine, For that is debauchery or waste. But here's the positive command. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. This is not extreme perspective of the Holy Spirit where I'm supposed to go in a wild frenzy and be slain and fall over on the ground. No, it's really to yield yourself to the direction and prompting of the Holy Spirit in accordance to God's will. God's word and his will um, number three is to be sanctified God's will is to be sanctified in first Peter excuse me first Thessalonians chapter four verses three to seven it says this for this is the will of God you want to know the will of God it's found it's right here your sanctification that you would be set apart that you would be holy living for Jesus and his will that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to control, his own body in holiness and honor not in the passionate lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all things as we told you beforehand and Solomon warned you that God (coughs) has not called us for impurity but holiness or but for our sanctification. So this is God's Will. Another way, another place where we see God's will is in Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6, and 1 Peter chapter 3, chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. And it's God's will to be in submission, in submission to God Himself. Um, and then He lays out what it looks like in the family that as a family that we are submitted, the Father is submitted to Christ Himself, the Son. I mean, the wife is submitted to, to Christ and the children are submitted to Christ. And there's this umbrella of authority and submission and obedience. Um, I understand our culture says different things. Let's rebel against authority. And even there was a shirt brand back in the day that was, oh my goodness, my brain is forgetting but the whole agenda was to basically rebel and to do crazy things and to hate authority. But Jesus says, hey, my will is not that way. I want you to align yourself to my will and to submit yourself under my design. He says so he addresses the family, the home, and also the workplace and also the government to submit in those <coughs> pictures under Christ's lordship ultimately. And then number five is God's will. In Christ that we would suffer. This is really the first first Peter is a whole book on suffering in Christ. In First Peter chapter 4, verses 19 and 5, verse 10 specifically, we have you get a little bit here. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore, conform, and strengthen and establish you. So that's a fifth way to know if you're in God's will. Number six, it is God's will to say thanks or to give thanks to Jesus Christ in all circumstances. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, Paul says here, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And to do what? Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is what? The will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It doesn't say give thanks in some circumstances or the circumstances that are most favorable to you. He says give thanks in all circumstances. Understanding what? Jesus Christ functions in this way. He rules the world. I said he's the commander chief of the world. And he's working all things good together for those who love him. So he's basically saying, I'm going to take the good and the bad and work it out. And so because you know God is operating on a grander level, we can say and give thanks in all circumstances because we know and we follow a good God. And I'll say with a footnote, that allows bad and evil in this world For a number of reasons, that's a longer discussion, but we're happy to talk about that as a community. Um, But we'll leave that at that for now. But the command here in being God's will is to give thanks. And so, so quick summary, how do we face unjust suffering? We had the mind of Christ. We want to think biblically and we want to be in God's will. The third strategy, the third strategy is this. Face unjust suffering with redemption from the past. Redemption from the past. This is a sound strategy. Every one of these strategies, Jesus, through Peter, is trying to give sound biblical advice of how to work through suffering. Um, I I just want to just think through like, as a Christian, what are the things you say to people when they're suffering? I hope things get better. Best wishes. Good luck. Those are not good things to say, all those are terrible. Give them truth. Right, you want to give them truth. Good luck. I mean, what's that? A rabbit's foot? What's good luck? A A a green thing with four leaves on it? You don't want to give people that. That is not going to help them. You want to give them gospel truth. All right. And so this is what Peter is going to do. He's going to paint them a picture of what God has done in Christ Jesus for them, and he wants to remember. What occurred? He wants them to remember the gospel. And he also wants to take this gospel and think through the future implications of Christ's return and future judgment. That's what's happening. This is to minister specifically to those who are suffering. Not four-leaf clovers, not rabbit's foot, not whatever else you want to throw at people and sign your letters, best wishes. We don't want best wishes. We want a lot of God and a lot of biblical, a lot of biblical thinking in your life so here we go. <clears throat> what does it mean to embrace redemption from the past? In First Peter chapter four, verses three to five. Verse three says this: "For the time that is past. I'm going to just go this slowly, <laughs> super slowly. So Peter is referring to a time that is past where the, Jesus Christ died on the cross. This refers to a time that's past where you, the penalty of sin was paid. So, the book of sin, regarding to judgment and the penalty of sin has been dealt with. Yet, there is still potential danger in our present life as sin still lingers on our flesh and our human body in this world. So, that's the presence of sin. I just said quickly and to clarify, the penalty of sin has been dealt with. And so, that's what's being alluded to. And then he says the next phrase, suffices. Um, <coughs> In other words, enough time has gone by, what else, for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What have the Gentiles want to do? Well, they have lived for themselves. They live for their own flesh, their own glory. And we see this right in this passage. My friends, this is the rated R part of Scripture. It's in the Bible. Let's see what they did in their sin living in sensuality, this is unbridled sin, more uh, rated R parts, they exercise drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I'm not going to define every one of these. If you're a kid, you can ask your mom and dad what each of these words mean. You guys could go to the Theological Dictionary online and have a word study together. But all this to say is Peter's grabbing some serious language to talk about the depravity of man. To talk about how his audience, and this is what he wants to do, his audience, these Roman believers, were once living this way. And he's saying, no, you have been redeemed from that. And in your temptation, and in your stress, in your stress, a lot of people either, either go to Christ, or what? We deal with our stress by... Drinking, distracting ourselves, doing all the kind of things. And he's saying, No, don't go back to that life. He, he says, <clears throat> Go to Jesus instead. But the temptation is right there. You once lived this way. You once practiced these rated R aspects of scripture, these sinful acts. And he's saying, Hey, no, don't go back that way. Jesus paid the price. Don't cheapen grace. Live. In light of the gospel, verse 4 now, 1 Peter 4, chapter 4, verse 4. With respect to this, referring back to your rebellious and sinful life, there are people around you that says, hey, they were surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So you're going through all this and there are some people saying, hey, come back. Let's live this former life. Man, don't, don't you remember how good it was when you were drunk and doing sinful activities and sexual sin? And he says, <coughs> There are a group of people that are calling the believers that Peter's trying to address that this, <coughs> that this is debauchery. This is dispensation. This is waste. And, and it's a picture of a whole crowd that's madly running together as a band of people in, in, in a melee pursuing sin together and I stopped and I thought and I go I can relate to this not in a massive group level but even in a micro level of my own childhood as I went through junior high into high school I I ended up with a group of friends and in 1992 our whole mindset was we're seniors we're going to graduate we got good grades. Mom and dad can't get on our case. But we're going to live for ourselves. So whenever we had any spare time after studying real hard, it, was, it meant we're going to live for ourselves. So I had a group of friends. Um, and I was in a graphic arts class. And I took commercial ad. And so in a graphic arts class, I made this shirt. <coughs> some, of them been, some of them would stone me today. So I won't talk about those. But we made, I made one shirt that said H. 4L, and it stood for Homies for Life. And so we, the four of us wore this shirt proudly at school. We thought we were the fantastic four, but really we were the foolish four. Um, Pretty much every Friday and Saturday night when we got a chance, we would pursue our melee of sin. We would drink, and we would drive. We would go to parties that we weren't invited to, and that was called party crashing, We would steal car stereos just because we could. We would steal hood ornaments to prove how strong you are. Could you imagine standing on a Mercedes Benz and you're just like pulling this hood ornament until it snaps on, off? And we would be so cool, we put it on a chain and we'd wear it saying that we stole a hood ornament. Um, So we became experts at what? Breaking the Ten Commandments. We did some teeping. We also took eggs, not hard-boiled, but raw, and we would throw them at people's houses, particularly the windows. Yes, um, we had problems. It's hard to get raw egg, and then the sun comes up and bakes the egg on the window. It's a bad deal. I also grew up in a Catholic church. That's the picture right there. I was baptized unbiblically as a baby there because I wasn't a believer. Um, and Then I was confirmed at age 13. And we are driving by drunk one day. I had this wild idea. Let's climb this church that I went to since my childhood. That's the outside. It's like four or five stories high. And the inside looks like the next picture. So we climb to the top. And then we hear this noise. cha 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 And then we see this light. Boop. It's flashing at us. It's called a helicopter. What do we do? We were- we run really fast. My buddies are running. I are running down on the side of this church. So, as we're running down, you go all the way down to these big gutters to catch all the water. He trips at the end of the gutter. He falls and flips on the ground. I don't do that. I jump over the gutter, over the sidewalk area, and land. So, I'm in this interesting situation. Do I keep running? Do I help my friend? I keep running. My whole point is this. I know that life. I experienced that life. And then in 1992, I had this experience to basically experience a lot of the ecclesiastic stuff, the things that this world has to offer. And even a girlfriend, I realized that wasn't going to make my heart happy completely. And so I went to camp and I gave my life to Jesus Christ and to my friends who said, Gary, let's go play and let's go party. I had to say I can't do this anymore. Um, just exactly like what these people are saying to Peter's audience. Go deal with your problems by sinning. And I go, no, I'm not dealing with my problems by sinning anymore. I'm going to pro- deal with my problems with Jesus Christ. And so that's the picture here that Peter is talking about. As you face unjust suffering, deal with it in what? In light of redemption. In verse 5, he brings more clarity to this. He says, But they, the unredeemed, broken, and rebellious, will give an account to who? Him, Jesus Christ, who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So one day, these people that are persecuting you, causing unjust sufferings in your life, they will give an account. They will pay back. And so... There may be a temptation in your heart, like, I need to get back at these people. I need to seek revenge. But know ultimately that they'll give an account. And they'll have to give an account to Jesus himself. And the, both the living and the dead will give an account. And so <clears throat> we could rest assured of this future implication of the gospel through <coughs> On the Christ, in one sense, Jesus bore the judgment and the punishment we deserved um, on the cross for us, for those who believe. But if you don't believe, Revelation 20, verse 11, verses 15 becomes the next reality. This is at the end of the Bible when Jesus comes back and he lays out the um, great white throne judgment. And just read it for what it is. You don't need to read into it. It's pretty straightforward. John <laughs> The older disciple has this vision. He says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him, Jesus Christ, who was seated on it, from the presence of earth, and, <clears throat> and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Verse 12, Then I saw the dead, great and small. Just think about all the people that passed away. The great, Alexander the great, and different people, and small, people of lesser stature. But it doesn't matter. Everyone here is at this great white right throne. So they're standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in, written in the books according to what they had done. And then verse 13, And the sea gave, them, <coughs> gave up the dead who, who were in it, Death death and Hades gave up the dead dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death. So we have a spiritual death. We have a physical death. And here we're talking about a spiritual death into the lake of fire. In verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire forever. So those who inflicted unjust suffering on other people will ultimately be judged one day. That's for sure. That's a given. And you can rest in that as you suffer for your whole life and you want injustice. Understand that God will settle all accounts in the end. And so... Real quick, strategy number one is to what? Put on the mind of Christ, think biblically. Strategy number two, make sure you're in God's will. Because if you're in God's will, guess what? You have a future hope and eternity. And you also know that the reality that going back to sin is not going to be better. And those who have persecuted you, guess what? They will be dealt with by God himself. And that leads us to our last strategy. Strategy number four. Face injustice with an eternal hope. This one verse here, verse 6. Arm yourself with a genuine and secure eternal hope in Christ Jesus. Peter wants to remind his readers and us today, the best way, one of the best ways to face unjust suffering and even potential death is to know that what we are experiencing now, a pandemic, And maybe future down the road. And what they're facing is what? Literally their very lives under high duress. This is not the end. They might think it's the end. And I think of a lot of people who felt like the pandemic was the end. And they're acting that way. It's the end. It's the end. It's all over. Everyone's going to die. I know some people died. But Jesus is saying, hey, it's not doomsday then. For all of us then and today, though terrible things are happening now, there is a future day where we will have ultimate victory, where we will escape judgment because of Christ's substitution on the cross. And we will what? Experience glory forever. For eternity. It doesn't get any better than that. And so he's reminding that this pain that you are experiencing is, is what Paul also says as momentary light affliction comparison to the weight of glory that you will experience one day. I can't wait to that one day. Some of us think that one day is after graduation or after I get married or it's retirement. No, the one day is when you come home back Home When you see Jesus Christ and when you're in a perfect fellowship, when there's no sin and when there's no conflict, when there's perfect unity, and where's the best dining experience that you'll ever enjoy, even though we enjoy the appetizers here in this life, whatever it may be, sushi, tacos, whatever, those are good appetizers, but it doesn't compare to the banquet that you'll enjoy one day. So, In verse Peter chapter 6, it says, For this is why the gospel, the good news, the best news of all, was given. Knowing that Jesus Christ died in our place as a perfect substitute was preached. This gospel was announced, communicated communicated to those who are reading, those who are alive, and also those who are not physically alive. We see that in the next phrase, even to those who... Who are dead. There are dead people that heard the gospel, that responded to the gospel. And we know that these people who martyred that were in the gospel martyred, that died for Christ. Guess what? They will be in heaven one day, and that's encouragement. And then uh, the last phrase, and that through that through judged in the flesh, the way. People are, basically, people are judged (laughs) physically and they will die. The end hope after we die is that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Understand that God is Spirit, and this is the way God functions and exists. He did a lot to readjust himself to function in our physical world. But he says for those who responded to the gospel, those who are dead and who respond to God, they will live in the Spirit the way God is does. This is another simple way to say what? He'll go to glory and they'll be in heaven. Um, In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, this verse was just so encouraging to me. I haven't read this verse for a long time, but in Hebrews 22, 12, 22 to 24, it says this, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, verse 23 is key, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Some of us get really happy. I got my kid enrolled into this school. But no, these people are enrolled into heaven. That is way better than this school and that school district, even though you think that school district is heaven. No, being enrolled into this school district, the heavenly school district, is the best. It doesn't compare to any of these other school districts that you think you need to get your kid into. So, these are the firstborn who are rolled into heaven, and to God, and to the judge of all. And here's the key phrase. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Those are believers that have been given Christ's righteousness, that have been made perfect, fit for heaven, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So this is the hope for the believers who are being persecuted. This is the hope for those who are dead in Christ, that one day they will be, what? The spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is good news. And so this is where you can say, hey, Gary, this is great, but it's not doing me any good. And for some of us, it may not be doing any good for a couple of reasons. One, you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Two, you know your Christian life theoretically, but your life and what you know in your mind hasn't hit the level of your heart. In other words, the tires of your faith haven't touched the road of life. It's not working in your life because it's all theoretical. So he's saying, hey, to his audience and to us today, if you want to live out the gospel, you need to get a grip of the gospel by trusting in Jesus Christ and then not just believing him for salvation, but also living this faith out in your regular, everyday life. And not be, I don't know, hijacked mentally by the media and other things. But you're going to say, hey, I'm going to think biblically. I'm going to live in God's will. I'm going to live in, right, in light of redemption. And I'm going to place my hope and trust in this life now, in the life to come. Hey, do I need to say any more for a communion message? I don't think so. Everything there is ready there for you to remind yourself of the communion, of the Lord's Supper. As we come and partake of this gospel meal, it's a time to simply to remember what Christ has done on the cross for you and me. Is to embrace the gospel in reality. And I'm going to give you a statement To wrap your mind around, just as Jesus Christ was crucified, but was alive in the spirit and was raised from the dead. Believers must suffer physical death, but their spirits will remain alive and enter into the promise of eternal life. This is the dynamic we live in. So I just want to just pause and allow you and if music team wants to come up to allow the Spirit of God to search your heart, to take a moment to prepare yourself for communion right now and consider three relationships. Your relationship with God, your relationship with others in this church and your relationship with the city or city or cities that God has placed you in to evaluate yourself and where you are.